When you're trying to improve your golf game, Callaway knows you can't hit the ball further by doing the same old thing. It takes unconventional thinking to transform your game, and that's what Callaway did with the new Maverick driver. Maverick drivers were designed using advanced AI. Callaway's supercomputer tested and refined thousands of virtual prototypes until it created Callaway's fastest, most forgiving driver. New distances out there, it takes a Maverick to find it. Explore Maverick drivers at callawaygolf.ca. This episode is part of Post Media's Reopening Canada series, a look at how the economy is recovering in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Canada's oil and gas sector took a major hit as COVID-19 shut down travel and a price war cratered the cost of a barrel. But as our economy starts to grow again, things are a little more sluggish in the oil patch. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. I talk with Calgary Herald business columnist Chris Varco about how the industry has rebounded, what the pandemic has done to the bottom lines of some big players, and what the outlook is for the future. Don't forget you can subscribe to this show on all your favorite listening platforms, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google, or Spotify. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Chris, before we get to how things have changed over the last few months for the energy sector in Canada, let's just refresh listeners on how bad 2020 started for oil and gas. Entering the year, at the very beginning of the year, there was actually a fair bit of hope and some promise for a rebound after a fairly difficult 2019. Oil prices were trading around $60 for West Texas intermediate benchmark prices in North America. And there was, I think, a hope for a rebound, and that really quickly evaporated when we saw two things happen, both almost within the span of about a month. One was obviously the COVID-19 pandemic. What that really did was it reduced global demand. It destroyed global demand for all kinds of fuels, particularly gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel, obviously. Then at the same time, we had a price war breakout between the OPEC countries led by Saudi Arabia and Russia. And what that led to was a, a price collapse through the early spring, we even saw prices go into negative territory for WTI for the first time ever, negative uh, $37 in, in early April. Hmm. Prices slowly began to bounce back, but that was really a dramatic switch in fortunes, which the industry wasn't expecting. As the country and many countries shut down their economies to help stem the spread of COVID-19, there were some industries that were deemed essential, and I believe the oil and gas industry was one of them. But what was going on in the oil patch through the worst of the pandemic? Was there a lot of production or were they storing what they were producing? Like, obviously, demand was way down because nobody was going anywhere or people weren't shipping as much. But what was going on in the oil patch as most of us were spending time in our homes? Well, one of the interesting sort of phenomenons in this price collapse was just how quickly it took place. When the price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia first exploded onto the scene in March, I think it was really apparent to the executives in most of the Canadian oil and gas companies that they had to take action quickly. And so what you saw was them begin to meet instantly with their executive teams, often virtually because many of them weren't in the office. And they began to take measures to deal with this slump by A, they slashed spending more than six, seven billion dollars of capital spending was cut within the matter of just a few weeks. Number two is they began to shut in oil at unprecedented levels. The estimates are about a million barrels of Canadian production. So more than 20% of Canadian production got shut in. Again, in the span of just a few weeks, many of them began to either lay off staff 
or began to cut uh, their operating expenses as well. Some of them cut their dividends. So they moved very quickly to hunker down. So you had a lot of oil being shut in. You had oil being traded at a steep discount and companies were really bracing for the worst. That's what happened in the short span of, say, two months. Obviously, we've hit the summer. We've seen restrictions across many sectors of society lifted. People can go shopping again. People can go to like non-essential retail places. People can travel a little more freely. But things aren't quite back to normal in the oil patch, despite prices coming up a bit. Where are things at as we sit right now? I'd say where we are is things have stabilized, and that is positive for the Canadian energy sector, but they are still very precarious. So we have oil prices, as we're chatting today, at around $40.85. Western Canadian Select Heavy Oil is trading at about $32.50, so there's about a $9 discount on Canadian crude. If you take a step back and you look at the big picture, global oil demand has really taken it on the chin. So entering the year, the world was consuming about 100 million barrels a day. By June, that had fallen to 86 million barrels. So a lot of demand destruction. And some of that is beginning to come back. I think oil demand is expected to be around 88, 89 million barrels per day in July and then begin to rebound from that. But I, I think everybody acknowledges that oil prices are still tentative. We really don't know how long the oil production cuts are going to last. OPEC made a massive cut of uh, almost 10 million barrels a day with its allies. Uh, we don't know how long that's going to continue on for. We see some of the production that was shut in in North America, in the United States and Canada, is beginning to come back. The most recent estimates I've seen is that maybe half of the 1 million barrels that was shut in in Canada has now uh, come back or will come back sometime during the third quarter. While we see a kind of a quicker rebound in some segments of the economy, there there isn't going to be a quick turnaround for the oil patch. No, and I think a lot is really going to depend on what happens with a second wave of the COVID pandemic. If we see that the economies have to begin to shut down again, if fewer people are able to go to work, if there's fewer people traveling, particularly on planes, we could be back into more demand falling off the table and sort of be right back to where we were at some point in the spring. So I think that's why everybody's being very tentative right now. I, I think cautious is kind of the word you hear people in the oil patch say when they're talking about whether they're going to spend more money or begin to bring production back on as they, they want to be cautious because they're not really sure what's going to happen with a second wave. When it comes to something like air travel and airports, there's a report out in the last week. It was a credit downgrade for the Edmonton International Airport. But what was interesting in it is they talked about, you know, the airport might not see a return to pre-COVID volumes until 2024. When forecasters are looking at the fate of the oil industry in the wake of COVID, are they looking that far down the line to when things could get back to, quote, normal? I think they are, but I, I also think there's an acknowledgement that we're in unprecedented territory here. These are uncharted waters, and so nobody really knows for sure when demand for gasoline is going to return to normal, or if it's going to return to normal, or when jet fuel demand is going to return to normal. And that really depends on public attitudes about when do you feel safe to take a flight and be sitting next to other people in a plane. So, you know, there's a lot of factors here that I think the analysts are making their best guesses on. But I don't think anybody can say with any sort of certainty what's going to happen with energy demand, what's going to happen with air travel, and, and ultimately what's going to happen with oil and gas prices. We're already seeing some of the aftershocks of the pandemic in the oil industry with second quarter numbers coming out for some of these big firms. How bleak are the financial pictures for these companies? 
Well, what we've seen so far is some of the larger producers have started to produce results. And no surprise here, there's been some very big losses. Suncor Energy, the largest Canadian oil and gas company by market capitalization, posted a second quarter loss of about $614 million. Synovus Energy, another big oil sands producer, posted losses of $235 million. Vermilion Energy lost about $71 million. And, and Meg Energy, I believe their losses were around $80 million as well. So these are large uh, losses. That's not a surprise, I think, to anyone because of the fact that, as, as we mentioned earlier, we had oil prices sinking into negative territory and were trading below $30 for most of the second quarter of the year. There's been a lot of talk in the ether, uh, social media, things like that, that because of the shutdown and because of the slump in oil prices that countries like Canada need to start looking at a greener future and even energy companies need to start looking at other ways to find revenue through greener energy sources. Could this recession, could the prolonged price slump caused some players to look, you know, diversifying what they do as a means to make money? I think there's a twofold answer there. The first part of it is, is yes, I think this will be a catalyst for change. What exactly that change looks like, I think people are still trying to figure it out. But we've seen, for instance, the oil and gas services sector start to look at other things, such as geothermal, as potential ways for them to generate work for their employees, for their companies. So we're starting to see some of the beginnings of that. But I'll go back to the point, which is even in the depths of the demand destruction, we still saw the world need 86.4 million barrels a day in June. So there's still a lot of demand for oil for all kinds of products, including things like plastics, which are in big demand. And I think a lot of what we're going to see going forward is who can become sort of the lowest cost producer and maintain market share and even grow their market share going forward. And I think that's where a lot of attention and focus is right now in Canada and is going to be in the coming years. Now, one other trend that we've seen this year has been big lenders, big creditors saying that we're not going to finance oil and gas projects or we're not going to loan money for coal projects. What does that do for the confidence of the industry in Canada and whether you'll see people want to invest in oil and gas more broadly? There's no doubt that there's a trend going on, particularly we've seen this with banks in Europe. Just this week, Deutsche Bank said that they would no longer lend to oil and gas projects in the oil sands or in the Arctic, as well as putting restrictions on projects that involve fracking in countries that don't have a lot of water supplies and water resources. We saw the Norway Sovereign Wealth Fund say earlier this year that they wouldn't uh, put money into the oil sands. So this is part of a broader trend, an ESG trend, I would say, with divestment pressures being put on the oil sands. However, and I make the point here that there are still a lot of Canadian and North American and international banks that are involved in the oil sands and have lent money. And there are predictions that the oil sands will continue to grow. We saw just today, IHS Market, a large energy consultancy, said that the oil sands will continue to grow over the next decade. And I, I think that's a testament to the fact that there's a massive resource there and that the costs are coming down to produce that resource. So well, there obviously are, as I say, divestment pressures, and there's obviously a lot of pressures for companies in terms of having access to credit right now. That, that is indisputable. But I also think that there's a massive oil sands resource there, and the expectations are that it's going to continue to grow in the next five to 10 years. Looking at the Canadian economy overall and the reliance of governments like the provincial government and even the federal government on a strong energy sector, 
What kind of hit are we talking about through the year for governments in Alberta and Ottawa? It's going to be a big hit. Uh, it will be a particularly large hit for the governments of Alberta and Newfoundland and Saskatchewan. Oil and gas is a big chunk of the economy here. You know, in, in Alberta, it's somewhere in excess of 20%, 25% of GDP. It generates a lot of revenue through royalties. We, I think we all know that the province was banking, I believe, on oil being around $55, $58 a year. Back in February, that was the expectation in the budget. That's not going to come anywhere close to where those prices end up. So that's going to leave a massive revenue hole. Just as an example, we saw the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, talk about the fact that the deficit in this province may approach $20 billion. So that gives you a pretty good understanding of just how important and how big the revenue drop will be. It's also a big revenue generator for the federal government as well. So these are things that governments are going to have to grapple with, and we're going to be seeing them make adjustments, I suspect, as the year goes on in terms of how much revenue they expect to generate from oil and gas. Does that concern about the provincial bottom line and the need for the industry to turn around explain why the Alberta government has put money and loan guarantees into the Keystone XL pipeline. It, like in the middle of everything that was going on, and I know that people were wondering when governments would step up to help the oil industry like they have with other sectors, with economic support through the pandemic. But what was the rationale, do you think, behind the Keystone XL decision? My understanding was that the Keystone XL investment decision by the Alberta government, the, the talks have been going on for weeks and months in advance of even the COVID crisis. There's a, I think, a fairly strong case to be made that Alberta needs more pipeline access and that Western Canada needs more pipeline access, that the oil has been trading at a discount. And we've seen the Alberta government having to curtail production uh, over the past year because of the fact that there was just not enough ways to get oil to market. And pipelines are the most efficient and the most cost effective way to do so, as well as being the safest. The Keystone XL project is a large project. More than 800,000 barrels a day of Western Canadian crude would move through that line if it's built and get all the way down to the U.S. Gulf Coast eventually. It would generate billions of dollars of additional revenues, additional royalties for the Alberta government, and would generate additional money as well for the federal government. So I think there's a fairly strong economic case. I think that's why they made the investment decision of course, the flip side of that equation is just how much risk is the Alberta government taking on here because there's no certainty that the project will get built, particularly if the Democrats win the presidential election in the United States in November. We've already heard Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee, presumptive nominee, say that he would cancel Keystone XL. So then the question becomes, well, what happens to the Alberta government's investment if that project does not go ahead? The federal government did come forward with help for the oil industry in the form of funding for well cleanup. Do we get the sense that the industry will be seeking more help from the feds or if there may be more help coming that we're not aware of? I think the industry will be seeking more help. The well cleanup, the $1.7 billion, which included money for cleaning up orphan wells and abandoned wells, that will generate money in the oil field services sector. And I think most people in the industry would say that's a good thing because that's the industry which has really been hit the hardest. We talked earlier about the fact that all of that money, you know, the billions of dollars have been cut out of capital budgets for things like exploration and development. So that really hits the service sector hard because they need the producers to spend the money for them to generate work. What we haven't seen, and I think what the producers are still looking for, is federal programs that will help them with the liquidity crunch. We saw there was a federal program that was put out for larger companies. The conditions, I understand, are fairly onerous, and there has been very little take up 
from Canadian oil and gas companies. I expect you're going to see more pressure being put both by the producers associations as well as the Alberta government to see some sort of modifications to that to make it a little easier to access. So I think that is something that we should be watching for in the next few weeks. All right. It was definitely something we will be watching for just to see how things proceed in terms of recovery and any aid that may be coming. Chris, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. 103 is produced by Carson Jarama, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Chris Varco. More from him at calgaryherald.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.